titles. This one is Fess Up. See, because you can't put that on Facebook. You can't be like, the sermon this week is called Fess Up. Come on down on Sunday morning. You'll have a great time. Um, but we've been talking about showing up and being present in friendships. We've been talking uh, and how, you know, any insecurities that we have that might prevent us from that, like we shouldn't because God makes us righteous and our righteousness comes from him aside from any action that we've taken. Um, and then we talked about growing up, which a little aggressive, but, um, but really we just mean like being aware of the pressure that is on us and on our friends in terms of expectations in this consumer driven world. We can get these just really so much pressure is put on our friendships and trying to take those expectations to Jesus and being able to relate to one another, like authentically as we are and not so much as like what TV shows say our friendships should be. And today we're going to talk about fessing up um, confession and vulnerability in our friendships. So uh, we're going to start with our main passage in just a bit. Um, but first, <clears throat> I want to take a look at an epic friendship fail that is perpetrated in the Bible and written about by the person who does it, like he himself. I just, I just love John so much. This is a Mike Pilavachi joke. He's a pastor in the UK. He led Soul Survivor for a long time. He's like a youth guy, so he's super funny. And he spoke at the conference, the National Vineyard Conference last summer. And can I just encourage you guys to come to these conferences because I can't bring all their jokes back to us because there are too many, but it's really hilarious. And so there's, I'll, I'll start with this one. It's in the book of John. So um, John 20 Starting in verse 1, so verse 1 through 10, John and Peter are about to discover that Jesus is resurrected. So this is written by John, and when he talks about the disciple that Jesus loved, that's a title that John gave to himself. So, so that's who that is. Okay, so here we go. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in it at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. That's very like Peter, isn't it? He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So our takeaway here... In addition to the fact that Jesus has raised from has been like raised from the dead, and uh, I do think that's the main point. But uh, but clearly, pop quiz: Who runs faster, Peter or John? John runs faster, and how do we know? Because he told us. The thing that makes this really funny, I think, is uh, if we go to the very very end of John, like the very end of the book. Let me just find it and I'll read it. It's really hilarious. He says, um, you know, like John. He does all the things, and Jesus comes back. They have breakfast on the beach, and all that's really cool. And then the very last verse, the very last verse of John, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. I couldn't have included all of the details, but I did make sure that you knew that I ran faster than Peter on the way to the <laughs> Really, John? Really? <laughs> 
Like, do, do any of us have friends like this? Or have we ever been this friend? Like, I'm definitely guilty of being this friend from time to time. And yes, we're, we're going to read about this moment that Peter and John discovered Jesus' resurrection. I think we should focus on the relationship dynamic um, between the two of them because John focused on this relationship dynamic. And John's a pretty special guy, but I think this moment really reveals just a little bit of weakness in him. There's something universal about that desire to, um, or about just like missing that particular social skill of like, when is it appropriate to share about our accomplishments and when our own accomplishments might, um, might just be like, not the point right now. Like this just isn't the point right now. Like, I just feel like I read, I read this and I just think like, read the room, John, like hundreds of scribes are going to be like writing these words down again for hundreds of years. This is in the Gutenberg Bible. This is in the Bible on my on my phone app that like John outran Peter, and it just it's just hilarious to me. And it really reminds me of a, a universally um, relatable character from a Dilbert comic, Topper. Does anybody know Topper from the Dilbert comics? If you don't, you will. So I have like five of these because I just can't get over how much I love Topper and Dilbert. So this one, Topper versus the boss. <clears throat> and I'm going to have to like read this in a way that if anyone is listening online, they'll be able to get the joke. So like you can read ahead, but laugh on cue, would you? Here we go. So the boss says, it was the biggest fish ever caught in, my, uh, in that lake. Topper, that's nothing. I once caught a dinosaur by using nothing but dental floss and the pull tab from a beer can. The boss says, I'd like to see this alleged dinosaur. Too late, says Topper. I also make the world's best barbecue sauce. Um, and then we have Topper again. I ran six miles, the um, Karen or whatever her name says, even though I was sore. That's nothing, says Topper. I broke my leg and hopped all the way to work this morning. You hopped 40 miles on your one good leg? On the broken one, says Topper. Um, and then this one, I really like this one because I have kids and I struggle with bragging about my kids and like other people brag about their kids and oh, I want to brag too. So, uh, so the woman that is Dilbert's like office mate says, my daughter is, uh, oh, this is a little bit, uh, my daughter is training. There you go for the, (laughs) my daughter's training for the Olympics and my son is going to Harvard. So then Dilbert says, I have no spawn of my own. So (laughs) I claim the right to name a uh, proxy. Is this one a little clearer over here? Sorry guys, my image is bad. So I, I claim the right to name a proxy to brag on my behalf. Topper, I need you. Of course you do, says Topper. My daughter discovered, uh, the boss, the Boston particle. Dang it, you guys, this is really ruining my joke because I can't read the lines. Topper's kids did impressive things, impressive things, impressive things, and he clearly makes some stuff up. And then she's like, you can't just make stuff up. And he says, according to the president of the International Society of Boasting, fabrications are acceptable. And she says, I'd like to talk to that guy. You're looking at him, Topper says. And so then Dilbert claims that he wins. <laughs> I win, says <laughs> Dilbert. Topper has topped you. <laughs> so the reality about this is that um, Topper being a Topper hurts relationships, right? Like, Topper's really irritating, and for a number of reasons. Um, we have, we're uh, admonished in the Bible to celebrate with those who celebrate and to mourn with those who mourn. And Topper really misses it, right? Like he just sucks the fun out of everything. Um, So whenever he's in the presence of someone else who's celebrating, instead of celebrating with them, he wants to beat them at their own game. And he wants to, oh, I've got something that's even more celebratory than this. And I think that while I don't actually know like a real Topper, like I I don't have a friend who would like do this all the time, 
this has been done to me, and I have done this to others. Because, like, you know, I want to I wanna relate, right? And sometimes in our desire to relate, um, we end up writing things like, and John got to the, you know, ran the race faster than Peter did. Um, so being a topper hurts relationships. The other thing is, is that um, he also ruins even, like, the vulnerable stuff. So we're going to talk about vulnerability and confession today. And, like, topper can even ruin vulnerability. So, like, another joke. Um... The, the little office guy is saying, this recession frightens me. And Topper says, that's nothing. During the Crimean War, all I had to eat was the cold stench of death. And then the office guy's like, you don't seem old enough to... I use moisturizer, says Topper. So like, so, like, even when the guy is saying something vulnerable, even when you've got somebody who's saying, like, oh, this is, there's something going on that's kind of hard for me. Like, Topper, he's, he's clearly mourning, too, right? He looks really mourning. But, but it's like even his tragedy is greater than the other person's tragedy. Like, even in mourning, he's just, like, it's more about making it about himself than it is about really identifying with the other person who is uh, who's sharing what's difficult for them. So very last topper joke, and we'll see if I can read it. It's one of the Sunday ones. It might be hard to read, but um, here we go. So uh, Dilbert says, um, my CPR instructor says I'm one of the best students. And so Topper says, that's nothing. I'm so good at CPR that my practicing dummy came to life. We, he grew limbs and got married to a crash test dummy. They had three mannequins together and they live in the suburbs. But the marriage didn't last because the CPR dummy could still or could not forget the taste of my lips. I blame myself for being so <laughs> irresistible. And then there's Topper all by himself in the room. I guess Dilbert has wandered off. And Topper, in a, in a special moment of vulnerability, I think, although you notice it's only in his thoughts, he says, why do all my conversations end with me sitting alone? Hmm. What a good question, Topper. This is a good practical question. I like to think that this is Topper starting to pray. Like, let's hope that he's asking, he's directing this question toward God. That would be a really good thing to do. The thing is, is that vulnerability in relationships and self-awareness in relationships, these are skills that we have to develop. Like, we're just not born having them. And you know this. If you've ever talked to a little kid, you know kids, like, some, one of the charms of children is that often they're so not self-aware. And that's what makes them, like, they do hilarious and wonderful things, right? Because they just, they have no sense of, like, how are other people seeing me right now? I'm seeing some parents, like, making eye contact with each other about, like, the lack of self-awareness um, <laughs> among their children. But while it's cute in little kids, as we grow up, this is a thing that we need to develop and get better at if we're really going to be in positive and healthy relationships with one another. Sharing vulnerability takes some wisdom. So when we see Peter and John, or when we see Topper and Dilbert, or when we see our own friends and our own colleagues and all of our relationships, I think as we move through those, it's important to recognize that being vulnerable with one another is a thing that makes us closer. And refusing to be vulnerable with one another can actually put up a wall that makes it harder for us to have friends. Sometimes I think there's there's kind of like a this sneaky thing that happens with like celebrity and stuff. Like I see some I see like Brad Pitt or maybe like a YouTube celebrity or something, and like they really have it together, and like a lot of things are going really well for them, and they have a lot of fans. A lot of people are like, "Ooh, Brad Pitt, you're so amazing," or whatever. I, I guess he's like Brad Pitt's like a he's like a guy again. Like he was like quiet for a little while, but now he's like being hilarious in acceptance speeches, and 
I just think like, well, I could be hilarious in acceptance speeches, but <laughs> see, see, I got to work on this topper thing too. Um, so, um, so we see them and we see them having it all together and we think to ourselves, well, maybe kind of that the insidious thought is if I have it together and other people know how much I have it together, then they'll like me and they'll be my friend. That's the path to friendship. The way that I can get friends, except for, am I Brad Pitt's friend, or am I the YouTube celebrity's friend? I think maybe I'm more of their fan. I think maybe I'm a fan of people who seem to have it together and be really impressed with leaders. But I'm not, like, being a fan and being a friend isn't exactly the same thing, is it? And offering how much I have it together as, like, a suggestion of why you should be my friend, I think that has a pretty short shelf life. Because the reality is, is that none of us really have it all together. And if somebody does have it really together, like, there are people in my life that, like, they're what, what Josh and I often refer to as five talent people. Because, you know, we're pastors, so everything is a Bible joke. But, um, so like, there are people in our life who will be like, oh, that's such a five-talent person. And we really admire them. But uh, these wouldn't be the people that I count among my closest friends. My closest friends are the ones that maybe they are five-talent people, and I can recognize that. But I know about the stuff that's hard for them, too. Because that's where we can really connect. Something that's wonderful about God is that through relationships, so often he redeems our pain through giving us connection in it. Have you ever had that experience where, like, maybe there's somebody and you kind of know them, and then they get vulnerable or you get vulnerable, something happens? If it was a movie, you'd be stuck in an elevator for a couple hours, and so then, like, things start to get real because, like, we're trapped together in this elevator. And we start to share our pain, and then we find real connection in that. Or maybe this has happened to you in, um, like, just, like, in one of your relationships. So, like, being married to Josh is, like, a wonderful thing. He's a really great guy. Um, But sometimes he does things that I don't like very much. And whenever he gets vulnerable about it, like, my, because my kind of thing, like, I'm, like, a fight to winner, right? So, like, a lot of times, like, I use mad to protect me from sad. So he'll hurt my feelings, and, like, the cold sadness will come in, and I just, like, like, put on my Iron Man suit of anger, and I'm just, like, I'm angry at you, and that will protect me from being sad. I'm mad about this because that feels safer for me, and I don't want to be vulnerable. You hurt my feelings, but really, I'm angry that you hurt my feelings. I'm not hurt that you hurt my feelings feelings like I do that kind of a thing and if he'll say something along the lines of I'm really sorry I did that I want not to have done that you know I'm I'm struggling with this thing and, and it made me do that or I know I have this bad habit and I'm trying to stop oh like nothing will get me out of my mad iron man suit faster than like an expression of like regret or vulnerability and we can connect again you know for me I'm like more the yeller like Josh almost never yells but like I'm kind of like the yelling it's like a thing I'm still working on I've gotten a lot better in uh, in recent years but sometimes I'll be yelling (laughs) like why are the dishes not done and why am I yelling about the dishes because I don't do the dishes either and I'm trying to stop yelling right now and just like that, just like, I'm trying to stop. I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, that expression of vulnerability so often can introduce, like, laughter and happiness again. And he can say, oh, this is good. It helps me. Like, it's not me. It's you. Like, stop bringing out about the dishes or whatever it is that we're fighting about. Like, just those expressions of vulnerability, like, we can find a real connection with others in those. But we have to be wise when we share our vulnerability because we want to be in step with the other person too. So like for instance, if you share your vulnerability this way, like your friend says, hi, my name is Brenda. And you say, hi Brenda, I'm Kara and I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts. Hmm, 
<laughs> I, I don't know how well that relationship is going to go for you. And I'm, I'm sorry, you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, Kara. But like this person who just met you, like they can't handle that yet. Like that's like way too much vulnerability, right? But like we have to like build it slowly over time. Like vulnerability is something that it has a cumulative effect. And the people that you're close to, I think we get closer all the time by like being appropriately vulnerable and being a little bit brave, but also being aware of them, like thinking about them and how they're experiencing our friendship and like what's going to be in line with like where we're at in our relationship. Because, you know, I'm like, I'm preparing the sermon and I'm like, well, like be really vulnerable, except like not with somebody that you just met, you know, like you want to like build that a little bit slowly. You know, um, so for instance, like the vulnerability that I express to Josh or to my closest friends is like way more intense than the vulnerability that I express at work, right? So like if I'm, um, you know, well, so Josh had the flu this week, and so I get all dramatic and feel like I'm a single mom because I'm not at all a single mom, but I had to put the kids to bed all by myself. So you know, I count that because I'm kind of a jerk. And um, and then the next day in work, you know, maybe like I drop the ball on something. If I were to apologize to that by being like, and things at home are falling apart, and Josh is always the one that does the bedtime routine, and I'm so stressed, and da da da, like that might not really help. <laughs> in that relationship because like it's like now I've been like too vulnerable for the context but I could definitely say hey I'm really sorry I did drop the ball I apologize for that and that's a way that I can be vulnerable that like is appropriate in that relationship you know so like being able to say sorry all of these things like these are the kinds of practical things that can help us build relationships. We're not going to make friends by being like this superhero superstar who's never wrong because hanging out with somebody who's never wrong is kind of like, I don't know. Like, all right, you're never wrong. Good for you. Why are you in this room all by yourself? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, the times when I've really fought hard to be never wrong, I'm in a room all by myself at the end. Like, right, I'm right in the room by myself, but I'm totally by myself. And everybody else who, like, is being vulnerable with each other, apologizing to each other, and, you know, like, talking about what's real in their life, like, they're all in a room with each other having a party or enjoying the Super Bowl or, you know what I mean? Like, at the birthday and and having a good time. So I think this is an important thing, like, as consumer culture and hyper-reality, as they take over our world, I think they say, like, be perfect, be perfect, be perfect, have a perfect Instagram, and have a perfect career, and have perfect kids, and perfect, perfect, perfect. And, like, yeah, no, we're not, not in the kingdom. Like, that's just not a part of what Jesus is doing. Jesus makes room for John, who runs faster than Peter. And he makes room for Peter, who just goes straight into the straight into the tomb without even thinking about it, which I I sense that maybe John thought that was inappropriate, the way he wrote about it. I could be, that might be me reading something into the text there, but I feel like there's a little stress in that relationship. And, like, there's room for those guys. They're, like, in, like, the top 12, like, of Jesus' like, favorite people while he's walking around on earth. He spends so much time with these dudes. And, like, they're so imperfect. And I just think that's, it's charming, and it's, like, a tool that we can put to use for ourselves of just, like, really being open and honest this way. So how do we do this? So I say share vulnerability and be wise in how you share vulnerability. And if you at all struggle with this, you might be saying, like, so how do I know 
if I should share this vulnerable thing or if I shouldn't share this vulnerable thing. Like you say, read the room, Kara, but like what even does that mean? And I think that for this, um, we can really, as we're like, as we make ourselves apprentice to Jesus, as we try to follow Jesus in the way that he lives his life, then we figure this out a lot more. And most of it comes from focusing on the other person. So we've been taking a look weekly at Second Philipp- or at Philippians 2, chapter 2. But if we go back to verse 1, because usually we start in verse 5. If we go back to verse 1, let's read this together. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is a thing that Topper never does. Count others more significant than yourselves. You know, I've heard some people say, like, it's kind of a, it's almost a cliche that, like, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Being focused on the other person, counting them as more significant than yourself, then, like, that's really what helps us figure out, like, how can I be vulnerable in a way that's going to be uplifting to this other person? Is by me focusing on them, not thinking about what am I getting out of this conversation, but thinking about, like, well, what is the other person's experience of this conversation? Am I encouraging them? Am I being in one mind with them? Am I counting them as more significant than myself? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's nice, because he's not saying, like, forget your interests entirely, but he's saying, like, look, you got to, like, like, let's factor everybody else in here, too. And then here's the part that's really familiar, right? Having this mind among yourselves, this relational thinking, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Becoming like Jesus means considering others. So like... When I'm worried about when am I going to get my turn, that's not me being like Jesus, right? But when I'm thinking about when is my friend going to get their turn, how can I help my friend take their turn, have I asked, have I considered, am I looking to their interests, these are the things that build deep friendships. These are the things that build deep friendships is when we put others in that place. Um, So I've got a couple of homework assignments for us, if you'll accept them, your mission, should you choose to accept it. First is... Um, at some point this week, when someone is either celebrating or mourning, just listen. Just listen. Instead of saying, oh, that's just like this time that I, or oh, that's exactly like how my kid also, or oh, I know what that feels like because, you know, mine was even worse, or something like that. Instead of doing that, just like allow yourself to be consumed, enthralled in the story that your friend is telling, and ask more questions. What was that like? How did that feel? Was this a surprise? Was this unexpected? 
Was this something that caught you off guard? Did that make it worse or better? <laughs> you know, a lot of times open-ended questions are really helpful. So, like, you know, I was listening to a journalist once, and she said, you know, like if you ask, like, were you scared? The other person would be like, of course I was scared. You know, she's talking like interviewing people in war zones. But if she says, how did you feel? Then suddenly she gets like so much more like rich details, and the other person gets to express and feel known and connect in a way that they didn't get to before because they were asked a question that really expressed her interest as a journalist and just gave them a lot of room, like making room for other people. Like that's the kind of thing that like it's not going to be the case that every time you do that for someone that they're going to be able to reciprocate because maybe they haven't heard this incredible sermon series and they don't know how to be an awesome friend yet. <laughs> but, but, um, but, but a lot of times it will. A lot of times, like, this is how we start relationships. If somebody says, you know, I'm going to be the leader and I'm going to make it about you first. And then the other person does reciprocate. And that's a gift from Jesus when we have that. In fact, I'd say that that's the kingdom of God coming. Um, and breaking backwards in history through to let us experience heaven now. Um, so I'd encourage just listen. And then the second piece of homework, if you choose to accept it, would be to wisely share your vulnerabilities. So sometime this week when somebody that you know and love and trust asks you how you're doing, like really tell them, really tell them, say, man, can I really tell you how things are going? Things are going spectacularly, or things are going really horribly, or things are going great, and I'm scared it won't last, might be a vulnerable way, or things are going great, and I'm not sure that I deserve it. I think maybe, you know, I'm experiencing some imposter syndrome, or <laughs> my husband is like, oh, me, can I have to put the kids to bed alone, and I found out what a big baby I was. <laughs> so, you know, something like that, <laughs> you don't have to do it up here with a microphone, but, um, but I'd encourage you to do that. I'd encourage you to um, just, like, really share and, like, give that time. You know, I think the important part of our friendships is that we're tending to them. If even this feels too hard, if even right now you're just like, oh, Kara, you're the worst. Like, just listen to other people's stories. I want to be loved. I need my turn. What do you mean don't take your turn? Um, I've got a quote for us from Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen's an interesting guy. He wrote this journal to himself. Like, this is just his own journal. And he wasn't going to publish it um, and because he thought it was, like, way too, like, on the nose, like, too blunt and too harsh. And But his friends, like, he let, like, a few friends read it, and they were like, oh, this is awesome. You should publish this. And he was like, no, 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 it's way too mean. But uh, instead he wrote um, the one about the Rembrandt painting Prodigal Son, which I've never read, but Josh has read, so you've got Josh's recommendation on that one. But then eight years later, his friends, like, kept nagging him. One in particular named Wendy, don't know her, like her so much, <laughs> because she's like, no, really, you should publish this. Like, people need to hear this stuff. Um, so as I read this, I want you to, like, I just want to, like, honor Henry Nowen by saying that, like, he was writing this to himself, not to us, and so if it's like, seems too harsh or it hurts our feelings, Henry Nowen was worried that was going to happen, and he doesn't want that to happen. So just know that he's on your side. Um, but me and Wendy think that we should all hear this. So <laughs> here's what he says. He's uh, at a point in his life and he's really struggling. And, uh, and he says of himself that, to himself, like the use in here is like Henry talking to himself. There are places in you where you are completely powerless. So, it, um, and then skipping down a little, so you must acknowledge your powerlessness. This is the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous and the treatment of all addictions. You might as well think of your struggle this way. Your inexhaustible need for affection is an addiction. It rules your life and makes you a victim. 
you can see why maybe Henry Nouwen was like, I don't want to say that to people. Um, but then if you skip down just a little bit further, he says, he talks about going to God, go and let God heal you. And he says, your willingness to let go of your desire to control your life reveals a certain trust. The more you relinquish your stubborn need to maintain power, the more you will get in touch with the one who has the power to heal and guide you. And the more you get in touch with that divine power, the easier it will be to confess to yourself and to others your basic powerlessness. I just love that line so much. Your willingness to let go of your desire to control your life reveals a certain trust. Because I think the messages that we get in our culture, in this cultural moment, is you need to be in control. You need to take control. You need to put the filter. You need to be in control of the soundbite. You need to be in control of the picture. If your friend puts a picture of you on Facebook and you're not totally attractive in it, that's a bad friend. And you need to take control and stand up for yourself in order to make your career happen. Like, you need to advocate for yourself. And here's how to ask for a raise. And here's how to ask for a promotion. And, um, and that's just not the way of Jesus. It's just not the things Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, consider others more significant than you. And the reason why he tells us to do that is because he knows that, like, he can hold us, you know? Like, we trust him, and he can meet all of those needs that way. Especially, and right now we're in this, like, now-not-yet world, so he can start to meet those needs that way. And um, we can, he can increasingly meet those needs that way as we let him in more and as we trust more. And even the places where the world goes terribly wrong— and we experience the brokenness and the not yet of the kingdom of God, he can redeem those things, and he can make those things happen. So let's get this right. Let's get this vulnerable thing right. Let's share with each other. Um, and the reason why is because I think this is really important, is that especially now, like right now as we're gathered together in our faith community, something that I think is important for us to recognize is that in our friendships with each other, with each other, like one another here, um, we're going to be friends forever for all of eternity. <laughs> like, we maybe have, like, a few more decades. Like, maybe we have, like, several more decades that we'll know each other. Like, let's say we all grow up to, like, 90 or 100 years old and we stay friends. Like, and that'll be great. And from this perspective, that'll seem like a good long friendship. You know, like, I like telling people, like, I've been friends with everybody in my church for, like, 15 years. <laughs> but, you know, like, that will still just be the infancy of our friendship. Every time that heaven is talked about in the Bible, it's talked about in a relational way. Like, here's, I think, the best commercial for why we want to believe in Jesus and just, like, push aside those Eastern religions. Eastern religions look at the pain and the brokenness in relationships, and they say, when you die, this will all be over. You'll just sort of dissolve into some nothingness, and no one will have the power to hurt you because you'll be completely detached, and you'll just sort of join the whatever cosmos, whatever thing, and you won't have to worry about those horrible people anymore. And that's not what God says. God says, when you die— there will be a crowd of witnesses. In Revelation, it says, it talks about a crowd of witnesses. And do you know who that is? That's us. <laughs> like, we're going to be in that crowd of witnesses. Like, if we die before Jesus comes back, and then Jesus goes and gets everybody else. And, like, we have this theology in the vineyard, and we don't talk about heaven very often, I think. And sometimes I wonder if it's, like, because, because we pray for healing now, it's like, well, we're weird about that, so we don't want to be super weird about heaven. Like, we definitely believe that God is inbreaking, and that we have so much of this stuff now, and we have access to God's power now, and we get to experience his love, and all of his goodness breaks in. But, like, 
like, let's not forget that, like, at the end of this whole thing, like, we're going to be welcoming each other to heaven. Like, whoever goes first gets to say, hey, welcome to the next person. I was listening to a pastor preaching recently. He had a friend who wrote a book who had studied a whole bunch of near-death experiences and was talking about all of these Christians who, like, on their deathbeds or in their near-death experiences, like, were seeing, like, their relatives who had died before them and were saying, like, come on, (laughs) you know, and, like, we're there, like, to welcome them into heaven. And, like, the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about this, so I don't want to get, like, too excited. I don't want to get too weird, but the Bible does talk about how we'll all be together and the people who have died before you and they'll be there. And, like, every miscarried baby will be there. Like, I have an older brother or sister, we don't know, who I've never met, who I will be friends with for all of time. Like, this is what relationships are going to be. And when we share our vulnerabilities and when we follow Jesus now, we get to have a taste of that kind of community in the present. In the old hymn, Amazing Grace, the way they say it is when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Like the friendships that we build in faith are eternal. And I think that it's important for us to remember this for more than one reason. One is when it gets hard, like, man, like, Let's keep showing up for each other, like, because this thing will go on forever. Like, let's build these relationships now because, like, this is my family forever. And another part of it is there are people who are outside of faith, and I want them to be there too. And I don't know exactly, like, I feel uncomfortable thinking about, like, what about the people who've died and they're not in faith now? Like, you know, I I think hell is real. Oh, this gets so complicated. I know that God's going to make that right. I want to find out how, because I, I I don't completely understand, like, how can it be okay later? But I think the important thing is that, like, For all of the friends that we have who are outside of faith, I think they're a gift to us because they can keep us near to the reality that everybody needs God's love, and we need to be able to share this with everyone. It says in the Bible that Christ's followers will be known by what? By our love for each other, right? Not by how many Facebook fights we win, or not by like our our clever politics that are exactly on point. We never voted for the wrong person. It doesn't say Christ's followers will be known by like their their lockdown budgets or their beautiful Instagram photos. It says that we'll be known by our love for each other. And I think like us practicing that love for each other here and then being able to extend that to people who are outside of faith, our, our dear loved ones who are close to us and not close to God, or maybe just like our work acquaintances that like we kind of know them and like don't we want them to? Doesn't God want them to? And then even our future friends, you know, like I am aware that before I met you, you still existed. <laughs> like when I was in high school, all of you guys were out and about. Well, maybe not Baby Charlotte, but everybody else was like out and about and, and and doing things. And then and then we met and we became friends. And that's the start of this eternal thing. There are more people that I'm going to meet, and I want that to be the start of an eternal thing. And that's a big part of why we do so many of the things we do, why we pray and we have house shows and art walk, and we ask God to grow our church and to build our faith and to bless our community that we can be a blessing to others. Because this friendship thing is just such a huge part of what the kingdom is. Like the being together, being vulnerable with one another, considering others above ourselves, looking out for the interests of others beyond our own interests like that's what the kingdom is and our kingdom has a king 
and he can help us with all of this stuff. Would you stand? We're going to take a minute to sing another worship song, and um, I just encourage you to come up and get prayer. We all know how this works. You come and stand in the circle. Someone will put their hand on your shoulder. They'll introduce themselves. They'll ask how they can pray for you. And I believe that God wants to heal our hearts of our addiction to affection. I think he wants to meet that need in us himself and really empower us to be able to build those friendships with others, both the eternal friendships that we have with others in faith and then also friendships with people who are outside of faith who need to experience the love of God, and they need it from people who are strong in generosity, who are strong and practiced and skilled at putting the other person before themselves so that they can experience that love. So if you want help with any of that, if you feel any pain about any of that, I just encourage you to come up and to get prayer. Let's sing.